Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Psychology Today, February of 2022. The person you can't part with, make amends with yourself and get on with life by Matt James, PhD. Many of us know that forgiveness is a good thing. It frees us from bitterness and anger, two difficult emotions that can disrupt our physical health and hold us back. Often we're consistent about forgiving others, but forgiving ourselves is more difficult. Understanding why self-forgiveness is hard can make it easier to practice. We tend to think of ourselves on a continuum. We begin with the past, move briefly through the present, and head toward the future. Letting go of the past, or the past we have created in our minds, can feel shaky and tenuous, like a boat that has slipped its mooring. When we try to forgive ourselves, we're trying to release something that feels as if it's part of us. We're releasing who we were at that moment. Of course, it feels easier to forgive someone else. We're releasing a part of the past that doesn't define us, unless we're told the story so frequently that we've built our identity around that narrative. In that case, it becomes hard to forgive the other person because the transgression and our reaction have become central to our our identity. To release that part of your past, remember that we're all doing the best we can at any given moment. If we had known that the action would cause pain to others or ourselves, we wouldn't have done it. And even if we knew that we were causing damage at the time, we had no idea how much we would regret it in the future. Retain the lesson from the event, but release all else. We register what we've done wrong mentally and physically. An injury to someone else might be accompanied by guilt, and such a mistake often brings sadness. If we try to forgive ourselves for a wrong without releasing the underlying emotions, the forgiveness doesn't take. No matter how hard we try to forgive, we continue to beat ourselves up because our nervous system tells us to. We connect our regret to limiting beliefs such as, I'm always saying the wrong things. Instead, identify that limiting belief or negative emotion. When we release it, we find that forgiving ourselves is not that difficult. Seeing ourselves as flawed can feel vulnerable, even scary. We're wired to survive, but those who make too many mistakes tend to get ousted from the gene pool. Even our education system tells us that anything that is not right is bad and deserves some form of punishment. We avoid making mistakes, but when we do make a misstep or misstep or mistake, the first impulse is to hide it. To forgive ourselves, we first have to admit that we blew it. We have to take ownership and acknowledge the slip-up, which counters our sense of survival. Mistakes, failures, and stupid choices are part of being human. It's how we learn and grow. If we're never embarrassed or wrong, and if we never make a mistake, we're probably staying within a narrow comfort zone. Appreciate the misstep for what it is, a stepping stone on the path forward. It's easier to forgive a person whom we really love. If our trusting, loving friend or significant other does something that hurts, we are likely to see the transgression as a one-time event. We refer back to the goodness and the love in them. Many of us, however, don't have loving, trusting relationships with ourselves. We are much more critical of ourselves than we are of others. We give other people the benefit of the doubt, but we won't cut ourselves any such slack. 
When we're dealing with a person we don't trust or like, most often we can choose to forgive, release the hurt, and simply avoid contact with that person. With ourselves, that's not an option. We cannot quit, divorce, or walk away. Loving and appreciating the self is key. Again, that's Matt James, Ph.D. He's the author of The Foundation of Huna Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. So the person you can't part with, of course, the obviousness of that is yourself. Uh, you take you with you wherever you go. Uh, unfortunately, this consciousness or this awareness, as much as a part of our identity, it is a feature of our humanity. Uh, obviously, there's, again, with that, some adaptive benefit. Uh, it's the idea that we could even possibly use that to evaluate ourselves or have constructive conversations. I emphasize the word constructive conversations with ourselves, uh, especially if we have an inclination to be caught up in feelings, strong emotions, uh, or even as we otherwise would identify or notice that we're thinking in maybe distorted or negative terms. To be able to step outside yourself and have a conversation with yourself, especially if it is constructive as would be to the benefit or the betterment, is clearly advantageous. Uh, talk to yourself. Communicate with yourself. Self-talk. But what makes that such a difficult thing to do is the subjective dimension itself. <laughs> talking to yourself is no different than self-talking to self. When it comes to that sort of constructive conversation, or when it comes to somehow maximizing our self-talk, or ability to talk to ourselves, we have to then at least be able to capture some degree of objectivity. Typically that comes from input from others, which is external feedback, although we have to be careful because much of our distortions in the way that we see ourselves also originated from others. And to some extent or degree, whatever we acquire through the socialization process in childhood, we tend to replicate when we become an adult. Uh, whether that's because we're familiar with the terms or the definitions of that relationship, it's become part of our identity or personality. Uh, certainly there's a habitual dimension or aspect of that. But we tend to not only hold on to family <laughs> throughout our childhood, well into adulthood, uh, or at least preserve our family relationships, we also tend to add members to our social network, whether as intimate as family might be, maybe a little bit more distance. Nonetheless, these individuals have to share some common paradigm, some common dimension of communication, some familiarity, or there's probably not going to be much success either in terms of communication or negotiating, working together toward a common end, which most of life relationships uh, are predicated upon that. There's a certain degree of reciprocity even if it's turned toward some selfish ambition. We need the help of others or having or securing the help of others, particularly those that are there consistently that can be counted upon to be there consistently through our life is of, again itself great advantage or adaptive. So we carry that into our relationships not only with friends as with extended 
but once again with significant others, not only historically as in the past, not only in present, but even as we are approaching the need for a long-term relationship or multiple long-term relationships, typically with those individuals being defined or characterized as significant others, they oftentimes repeat those patterns. They oftentimes go by somewhat the same narrative. There's a cultural dimension to that. And that becomes our paradigm. That becomes, again, part of our identity. That's what we have learned and acquired and stored, so to speak, in our repertoire of not only how we look at the world, our perspective, but how, based on that perspective or how we interpret the world, how we also then have learned what works or doesn't work, what is to our greatest or lesser advantage. And in that, again, it all comes back to selfishness, uh, at least gratification of the self, or in some sort of basic sort of way, continuing to find more life for self. But we also learn along the way that helping other people is one of the best ways to helping ourselves, as much then they represent resource and uh, can help us or accomplish, even to the extent of differing perspectives, outside, again, feedback, if they're at least removed enough at least capable of being separated enough from our worldview as to offer a different perspective and possibly even a more objective perspective. That is all, again, beneficial, helpful. It allows us to see things that we might not otherwise be able to see if we're just having the conversation against self-talk with ourself. It allows there to be that dimension of exchange and with that fresh ideas. That's possibly the best way to describe the basis for psychotherapy. Uh, going to consult with another, psychological counseling. It always has the ingredient of not only a different perspective, some, if not many, new ideas, but hopefully it also holds the hallmark of objectivity. To be able to see the situation and circumstance through a, at minimum, neutral lens, even if it would be otherwise directed toward some sort of a positive uh, orientation toward the individual who's going through the therapy, nonetheless, it should never be without some sort of reality basis, lest in the end, we really, as the psychotherapist or the psychological counselor, do more harm than good. That's why, in terms of training, most psychotherapists, all psychotherapists, ethically, uh, are called to remain objective, to allow science or the empirical methodology, the paradigms that we communicate, the opinions that we offer, to be as rooted in science and research as is humanly possible. Is it then possible to completely remove the subjective? No. Is there some room for subjective sort of uh, interaction, uh, based interactions? Yes. Obviously, there's some individuals that are going to be more compatible than others. But what it does mean, though, is if objectivity is compromised, either so much when it comes to self-talk or as you might then single out and seek out the best representation of that in terms of some objective opinion from someone who gives or offers a positive uh, 
direction toward help and support, but nonetheless isn't so caught up in that end that they would somehow misrepresent the data, uh, misrepresent the facts, misrepresent objectivity, have that compromise. Why that's so appealing? And most individuals who do gain from psychotherapy or psychological counseling do so because they recognize that immediately. That's part of the reason why we don't turn to only friends for input or why even as we might extend that, the more we approach the professional dimensions, the ethical considerations, the licensure sort of dimensions, it holds then that person that we're speaking to, the therapist, the psychotherapist, the psychological counselor. It holds them to all but the highest of certainly intentions, but also standards. Again, it must be empirically based. It must be evidence-based. It must be rooted in research. It must be something that otherwise is standardized in terms of not only appraisal, assessment, diagnosis, but also recommended protocols as far as treatment's concerned. But since most of us aren't trained in that, then when we have self-talk, it is usually by proxy of that kind of a circumstance or situation that teaches us, offers unto us, a model that is itself objective, scientific, empirical, research evidence-based. That allows us then to step outside of ourselves and in that conversational sort of way, address those concerns from both a subjective as well as objective vantage point. Is it freed from the necessity of further feedback? No. Should there be any sort of limitations and restrictions on opinions? No. Certainly the more information you take in, the more people that you consult, even if they should be uneducated or untrained in this kind of methodology or model, of uh, trying to determine, problem solve, identify not only the problems as with assessment, the circumstances as with assessment, the situations that are bringing the stress or the requirement to make changes or adapt or the source of our discomfort. But there are also then individuals who have tried things that maybe we've never tried. They've grown up in situations or been brought up in situations where possibly the culture was somewhat different. Uh, possibly they've learned some things through experience that we've not had the chance to empirically acquire ourselves. Take in that data and information. Allow that to become part of that dialogue. But certainly when we do that, we also have to always assess ourselves, measure ourselves within ourselves, just how objective that person could really be. And that ability, again, to adopt the most stringent or restricted of objective perspectives becomes then the highest standard or order as far as our aspirations go when we have or conduct that type of internal dialogue with ourselves. Because if we can do that, then we've got the best chance at at least creating a constructive, again, dialogue. Otherwise, we fall into the trap of our own subjectivity, our own emotions, our own thinking, and continue to repeat then, risk greatly repeating then, the same mistakes over and over and over again. We don't change the paradigm. 
We don't change the social supports. We come to some of the same conclusions. The feelings remain the same. We don't have any fresh input. We really don't have either challenge or accountability that also goes along with the psychological counseling or that relationship. Now, is that the highest order of relationships? I don't know. It probably could be seen that way if it is strictly then about taking in data, processing it, beginning to try to understand objectively options, choices. But at the same time, it can't be so sterile or it can't be dismissive of the fact that sometimes all we want and all we really need is a lot of personalized support. Just a lot of affirmation. Now, psychological counseling and psychotherapy can include that too. Uh, it's part of encouragement. And again, there's nothing wrong with the, the subjective sort of dimension of appreciating or maybe more colloquially saying liking the other person. There's nothing wrong with positive exchanges in the counseling situation or circumstance that are probably more friendship directed than they are professional as long as it's all part of the most important overarching objectivity the scientific there's nothing wrong with the the interaction being a friendly one because we need that as well but when it comes to then really solving problems most people would benefit more. And when it comes to this notion of the person you can't part with, forgiveness then has to come from that sort of a perspective. It has to include some degree of objectivity. It has to allow you to step outside of yourself into almost an alternative sort of persona so that you can extend to yourself the same that you might otherwise, as the article seems to capture, the same forgiveness that you would extend to others. Even including that sort of proactive or that real positive or pro-social is even a better word, sort of dimension. We want to see you succeed. You should want to see yourself succeed. Now, am I suggesting that people somehow uh, cause themselves to have some sort of dissonant experience, two separate parts? Uh, am I suggesting that the ideal of health doesn't include mental health especially, behavioral health especially, include the idea of integration, holistic, uh, especially when it comes to personality dimensions? Absolutely not. But I am saying that to step outside of yourself, especially with the intention of taking that information, that ability to step outside yourself and perform those functions, particularly along the lines of not only objectivity, seeing the situation for what it is, kind of uh, somehow scrubbing some of the negative emotions, particularly the ones that have something to do with sense of identity that's steeped in failure. Maybe the socialization process or the culturalization process growing up, it wasn't the most affirming or positive. Possibly it was abusive. The perspective or the identity, the paradigm that one looks at themselves, the lens through which one looks at themselves, can be so distorted that unless we can step outside of ourselves, there's no way to either 
recognize just how distorted or possibly then be able to start to change the narratives, the interpretations, to ascribe or change how we ascribe meaning, significance to the events on a personal dimension, how to see them all as part of growth, see them all as part of, again, adapting something positive. But to do that and then to bring that back within the subjective or at least that idea of integrity to bring both of those worlds together would represent outside of that most pure of relationships, at least an ideal, of being able to sit down with someone who has the training, the background, the ethical considerations to be both positive but also as objective as humanly is one is humanly capable. That allows both of those worlds to, to come together in such a way that that dialogue or that communication does not necessitate then having to speak to someone else outside of yourself or if there is not then the resource, the ability to find those kind of trusting relationships, the significant others who we believe really does have our best intentions and thoughts in mind, or at least sees us in the most positive of sort of positions or possibilities, uh, interprets things that we do within more of a positive rather than a negative perspective uh, with intention in mind then we can at least begin to do some of that for ourselves. Now possibly that's only psychological first aid in that eventually all things should probably come back to some level of debriefing where objectivity is considered, uh, even if it is somewhat removed after the fact and includes a third-party reference. But if that's not immediately available in that spirit of psychological first aid, then we can do much to mitigate the deleterious or the negative impact of self-criticism, which is really the opposite of forgiveness. To be self-critical, to be overly self-critical, to not be able to see oneself within a positive light really begins to define at least some of the, if not the, essential dynamics that explains why people can't forgive themselves. Yes, it may originate with others' appraisal of us because that's basically socialization. Our self-worth, our identity comes as much from what other people tell us when we're young as a child, but when we become old enough to be able to make this psychological, this maneuver where we can actually remove ourselves somewhat from ourselves to have that sort of critical in a healthy way analysis to try to apply objectivity within a much more positive or as positive a framework as possible, then what that means is, is that we can then turn to third-party others. We can go to psychotherapists. We can receive psychological counseling. We can turn to significant others, family and friends, after the fact, but in an immediate sort of way, it at least slows down the process of just reinforcing what otherwise might be an identity that's constructed, a personality that's been constructed of failure of negative feedback, not only as a child, but because that person has never really learned to step outside themselves to understand how this type of thinking 
this ability to step outside yourself and evaluate yourself in some sort of abstract manner, they've never really actualized that well enough or they've remained so trapped in the negatives the emotions, the paradigms from their childhood, especially those that have elements of abuse or neglect or abandonment uh, that go along with them, to really be able to even begin to appreciate how other people might see them much differently or how that may differ so significantly from the potential reality that's out there that they, the world may not be shaded in such a manner, such a negative and critical manner or fashion. So eventually coming back around and applying that socially with others is all part of. But until that happens inside of yourself or you're able to do that inside of yourself or within that psychological domain of self-talk, self-dialogue, self-expression, then we're probably at risk of being too much influenced by not only present but past feedback from others, and it will overshadow. It's almost as if it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, as they say, about what we should expect the future to be. The person you can't part with, (laughs) it's you. You can't part with yourself, but you can step outside yourself. It is a normal feature of cognitive development, abstract thinking and thought that allows us to step outside and garner not only the perspective of another person, but allow ourselves to adopt such a model of objectivity and pro-social or positive affirmation and even begin to change our own self-talk. Does it help to go to a psychologist, a counselor, a clinical counselor, or a clinical social worker? Absolutely. Uh, Maybe it would be good for everyone, but should that not be an available resource or not immediately available as a resource, much of it can be done within yourself. So I would tend to agree with this article in Psychology Today, February of 2022. The person you can't part with, make amends with yourself and get on with life by Matt James. Because if you don't do that, then what's the chances then of actually if you are within that sort of model and you can't get out of it, the negative, the critical model, you're probably going to find more of the same. And the more hurt, the more it gets reinforced in a negative way, the less likely you are to experiment with it so that that model is really even more terminal. It's harder to change. It becomes fortified in not a good way. It's strengthened in not a good way. Uh, The podcast, Word with Dr. Michael David Clay, is intention to that end. Uh, is to also help you, especially those who have limited resources or maybe are not at quite the point where you're ready to kind of begin to see or initiate that process of stepping outside yourself. And we offer you a perspective, one that's hopefully a bit more positive, certainly one that's researched, empirically based, and certainly one that you would find or would be common if you do seek psychological counseling or psychotherapy help or assistance. 
If you should have any input or questions or if you'd want to contact or reach out to us, feel free. I always post also the email address as well as uh, the website that you can visit us. Uh, and with that, I would want to, once again, encourage you to come back for our next podcast where we'll be continuing to look at such things as forgiveness and self-esteem and just how to overall make your life a bit better. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and uh, hope to be able to speak again soon.